This is episode number 208, Childhood Circumstances, Testing Ground vs. Victim Mindset, with Scott Mason. Welcome, my name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to make a few quick announcements. First one being an invitation to all of our listeners to our upcoming event called Survive to Thrive Attitude of Gratitude. This is a two-weekend experience hosted on each one of the Sundays starting March 21st and the second experience being March 28th, where we'll be facilitating discussions around the topics of how to develop resilience through gratitude, how to understand grief through gratitude, and ultimately uncovering the mindset of what it means and feels to be grateful in our lives and all the different wrestlings and takeaways that such mindset can bring into one's journey. For more information about how to join any of these particular experiences, please consider visiting our website at overcomingodds.today to which you'll be able to find the information regarding the events as well as the speakers or facilitators of both of these experiences. The second announcement that I'd like to make is if you've enjoyed any of the previous episodes or if this is your first time tuning in and you like what you heard, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can hear these inspiring and courageous conversations. Now, let's get back to the show. Thank you for being the very first guest. Thank you for kicking this off, and I couldn't think of a better person to start this particular podcast with than you. Thank you. It is such a privilege, and I am ecstatic to be here. Congratulations on your new show. You are going to absolutely kill it. Absolutely. No, thank you. Thank you for being a part of it. And as I was sharing with you earlier, you know, one of the things that the trip uh, that I recently took to Arizona to see the Grand Canyon and some of the other places within that that made me realize was um, who are the most important people in my life. (laughs) And uh, you were one of the people on it, on that list, because it it made me realize that I think people coming to one's life, in my opinion, for kind of a season, a reason, and a lifetime. And I know that ever since you and I connected, both of us sat there on the other <laughs> on the other end, taking, you know, notes upon notes. Yeah. But I think that was the thing that made a difference is that we chose to continue to stay in each other's lives and impact and influence each other in a way that has really been a life lasting impact. I could not agree more. We both complement each other and, um, you know, fly in the same on the, in the same, the same um, jet stream. And that is an amazing thing to have in your life. And I'm grateful to you for being that way for me. No, thank you. So I know the topic you and I wanted to talk about today was in regard to this concept of childhood circumstances and how do you know the difference between which of them are, Um, served as a testing ground compared to victim mindset. I know that one of the comments actually that was posted, I think it was on your post when you had made the um, promotion this morning was this concept of (coughs) siblings living in the same household. 
but yet having extremely diff different attitudes and viewpoints, even though they've experienced the same exact thing. Yeah. Maybe one way to start off this conversation to begin with, like when you think about childhood circumstances, especially those that have presented difficulties to someone else's life, mm -hmm. how do you personally look at them? A number of different ways. First of all, I do believe that they are formative, but not completely determinative. We do have choice in how we deal with them, but they are, those choices can be constrained and the development of our ability to see options can vary dramatically dependent on those foundational circumstances. And <clears throat> I view childhood and the, the events that we go through in childhood as foundational in a way that very few other things are. But at the same time, there are also things that we can shake in a way that we might not be able to with events that occur as adults. The other thing that I want to say about childhood and it goes as to the reason why I say there are a number of different ways I can answer your question is childhood means to me two things. First, it is the actual aging experience that you have, that you live through up into a certain point that we can define, usually at, at being ending around 17 or 18, maybe younger, maybe a little older, depending on your culture and the laws. Number two, the mental state that you carry with you. I know 70-year-old people that are children in a way, mm -hmm. and there may be a number of different reasons for that. Then I would actually, sort of thinking this through out loud, add a third thing. And this is perhaps the most important. Childhood is a reflective framework, almost like a mirror of Galadriel, for those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, a place that exists really as a mythology or a story that we create that has meaning dependent upon what we build into the mirage of memories. And the reason why I say the mirage of memories is because I bet this is the case with you mm -hmm. and with every single person who might be watching or listening, which is that uh, who are adults. Many of the events, circumstances, and transformations that occur during childhood, often we look back on and wonder about to what extent they were even real. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that that intensifies the further and further we go back in time. And so really what the brain does, I believe, is reconstruct reality based on what our not fully developed minds are able to piece together from our experiences and retain. And that is a very different meaning of childhood. And it has profound implications for our story and the stories that we create, recreate, or transform as we move forward. Do you think those childhood experiences, so this is something that I've been curious about, and you mentioned this as you were sharing your own particular experience, this concept of decision. So I'm a huge believer that the decision is always available there for me to make 
regardless of which phase of my journey that might be mm -hmm. childhood, teens, adulthood, and whatever other phases there are. What I've realized was that oftentimes, at least throughout my own experience, I put so much emphasis on the childhood experiences where in a way I almost, how do you best phrase this? Like imprison my mind that because these things happened when I was a kid, there's no way it could be any different moving forward. What I realized over time though, is that that's ultimately not true. That yes, even though I might've experienced very difficult circumstances when I was a little kid, moving forward, I have a choice in how I look at them. You know, I have a choice in how I look at those events. And so it really got me curious as far as, is there a point where, I don't know if you've experienced this, but like we put so much emphasis, I, I've done this. I put so much emphasis on the childhood years and the childhood circumstances where those were the things that I ended up living for however many years until I finally got to a point and realization that I can make a different choice. Mm -hmm. I can look at those circumstances through a different lens. Mm -hmm. And yes, and, and I guess the other part is like, there's really no way of knowing um, which of those stories are you reconstructing to a point where it doesn't actually become the actual event that took place. But I also get curious in that is like, why does that even matter? Mm -hmm. You know, so like if X, Y, and Z happened in a particular way when you were eight or seven, and you happen to view it through a different lens now, is one necessarily better than the other? Mm -hmm. Or is that just the truth evolving? You know, with particularly regards to that last point, I would argue at first blush, that it really can matter. It doesn't always matter, mm -hmm. but it can to the extent that A, we are committed to factual truth or that factual truth actually matters in a circumstance. And I, and I think there are a lot of times in which it really does. And then number two, to the extent that it impacts negatively or in some cases positively, our interactions with others um, that might have changed were we looking at the past events in a way that were accurate. So for instance, let's say my, and I have a younger sister, she's mm -hmm. a lovely person and everything I'm about to say about her is a complete fabrication, but I am fabricating it for a reason. Let's say that my sister was a bully and I was a, you know, a very thin, sickly child. And at least according to my memory. And I seem to remember every day she came home and punched me in the face and, you know, kicked me around and, and rolled me in the dirt. And I developed a fear and resentment um, towards females because of that. Well, what if that memory wasn't really true? Mm -hmm. What if the reason my sister was punching and, you know, kicking me and rolling me around was because I was being a jerk and I was harassing her and she felt she had to defend herself. Or what if she was being, and this is bizarre and surreal and would never happen, but like, let's say my parents were ordering her to attack me for no reason and she didn't want to, but she felt she had to, right? I might then, if I were not to, and I, and let's say there were my in the circumstance that I just mentioned where the, I was actually causing her to just defend herself because I was being such a jerk. Well, let's say I chose to reconstruct that little part of the story out of it completely. I might develop all sorts of dysfunctions as I was describing before, right? Like a distrust or, or resentment towards females that was, that's misogynistic. Mm 
mm-hmm. and that it would be utterly unjustified. Um, and that I would then have to work through when really I didn't need to. Really, the, the, the appropriate way for me to resolve those issues would have been for me to face my own actions, mm-hmm. hold myself accountable for them, and then I would be able to release these you know, emotional feeling states against a, a totally innocent group of people. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I do feel like the stories, that's an example of why I feel those stories can matter. Um, the other thing, too, is I just really feel like without diving into the rabbit hole, which God knows I would love to about the very nature of reality and to what extent anything that we experience is constructed or not. Mm-hmm. Assuming that we live in an actual physical world that has actual things in it that are irrefutable, like the existence of the sun, for instance, or the existence of the moon, right? Not acting on the actual realities, pretending, for instance, that the sun didn't exist. And so I just decided to look up at the sky without my eyes protected would have actual implications on my ability to function down the road because I might go blind due to that refusal to accept reality. And then to the extent that I am, because of that, taking a philosophy that there is merit to truth, and there are actual facts in the world, then basing my personal narrative on a fiction is deeply, to me, problematic. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, yeah, I mean, it also goes to a point, something that I shared with you when I went to the Grand Canyon, and I was able to see the whole thing from the top down, and then <clears throat> bottom to top, I realized that top down, the very first time seeing it, I couldn't even conceptualize that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't conceptualize the height. I couldn't conceptualize all the different things that are within it. And that goes back to the point that you mentioned, and that is how real is real at the end of the day. At the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, many of these memories that I find myself sometimes telling myself is I've reconstructed so many different times. And I'm not saying that as a quote unquote, like a victim mindset by any means, but more so I think it's just the reality. Yeah. You know, when, when I'm, when I expose myself to so many different perspectives, like you do as well, it shifts your own perspective yeah. and it shifts it to a point where there's so many different viewpoints that come at all in one place. And now you got to figure out, okay, this was the one I, I started with, but here are all of the other possible ways that it could have actually played out. Yeah. The dreamlike nature of childhood memories amplifies exactly what you were just saying. Mm-hmm. When I was a teenager, which I still considered childhood, although it's more of a transitional era of childhood, and obviously being 16 isn't the same as being, being the same, isn't the same as being three, or at least let's hope it's not, you know, <laughs> when I was, and maybe for some people it is, but you know, when I was 16, 16, 17 and 17 really is on the cusp of not being a child anymore, but let's age it down a little bit. There was someone I knew who was a football player-ish type, really good-looking, golden boy. He was smart, had nice clothes. His parents were affluent. He was living the life that someone like me, I thought, could only dream of. But he kept running away from his home. And eventually, one time when he ran away, he never came home. I later found out that he was discovered 
murdered, tied to a park bench in a Western state. And apparently this murder was brutal. You know, for many years, I believed that story. But then when I was in my 30s, it occurred to me, this is so extreme. This is so bizarre. This is so just out there. I'm not even sure it's real. Maybe it's something that I read or that I saw on TV or was like some, you know, suburban legend that kids in my hometown were telling around campfires that I just decided was real. And my uncertainty about the reality of that memory was such that I eventually called up a mutual friend of ours, of the dead persons in mine, and asked him, did this whole thing really happen? Or did I make this up? Now, he confirmed that my memory was totally true. He said, yes, that's exactly what happened. You're remembering it with complete accuracy. But the whole reason I had that level of doubt was because the memory was a childhood one. And so I viewed viewed it as inherently less reliable because of that. Mm. I've definitely had things like that happen before. And I remember even going back to some of my friends or even people within my family and asking them whether or not it had happened. But see, the, the challenge of that, at least for me, was even though I could be in the same exact room as my mom or my sibling or whoever it was, we still saw it differently. Yeah, And that's, I think, is also a fascinating point, considering that we both of us have um, siblings, is how is it that living in the same household experiencing, quote unquote, exactly the same circumstances, but yet having completely different attitudes? and I, Yes. And I would argue that although people say the parental and familial environment that siblings were raised in was identical Mm -hmm. the circumstances are due to a number of different factors always radically different not the least of which um are based on birth order gender physical attributes and other things like whether you're adopted or not Mm -hmm. in my case my sister was extraordinarily beautiful Really, just she was just wow. Uh, I wasn't, I was kind of the opposite. Whoa, like, where did you come from? <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. There's a picture of me, uh, my naturalization certificate. I worked for a for an agency of New York City when I was right out of law school that defended um, the city against allegations of extreme, you know, damage and personal injury um, by plaintiffs in the Bronx. And one of the staff people saw my birth certificate, which I had to submit to the bar association when I was actually getting sworn in. And she looked at my picture and she, without knowing it was me, she looked and she said, oh, who's that poor pathetic little kid? Is that the plaintiff? Hmm. (laughs) No, it was me. So you have my sister who was female, stunningly beautiful, and me who was homely. My sister also was treated radically differently than I was, even though the parental environment was the same. My parents were old school and believed that little girls should be princesses. 
And so she always had a ton of clothes. She had, a, you know, mom and dad bought her a television of her own. They bought her a nice stereo before they bought mine. You know, she had a, a, a queen size bed as opposed to my, you know, double. They, she had, um, you know, lots of beautiful decorations and was, you know, in, in a lot of classes. My parents' attitude was, you have the smaller room, you have a small bed, you don't need as many clothes, get to work. And I did. I had chores upon chores upon chores. And I was expected to complete them with military precision. If I cleaned my room, my father or mother would check to make sure that I'd check, you know, tucked the sheets under the bed or they lift, lift up a book to make sure that I dusted underneath them. And, you know, the hard labor was mine. And I'm not saying that in a victim sort of way, but the environment was very different. And I and my sister grew up very differently with regards to expectations about work, with regards to what we expected to have in our circumstance. I, for instance, was required to take a shower in three minutes or less. Wow. And to this day, I am in and out of that shower. My husband mentioned just the other day, like he's like, I really appreciate the way work just gets done in this house. And you do a lot of it. And that's, again, the result of this sort of environment. My sister was never raised to do those things. I had to drive. I learned how to drive because I needed to get a job when mm -hmm. I was 16. My sister had my father um, escorting her around in a car until after, well, after high school, I think. And so, again, you know, it's only then natural that our perceptions about our childhood and the impact of those parental choices played out very differently in our lives. Mm -hmm. So do you think in those, in that particular circumstance, it, it really almost doesn't even matter what the circumstances are, because it sounds like it more so boils down to the individual. Because you and I can go through the same exact thing, but yet how, what we choose to do with it and how we choose to engage with those experiences is completely up to us. I tend to say that with a caveat, mm -hmm. and that is we all have due to, and I'm not a biologist or a doctor or anything. Mm -hmm. So I will say this in lay terms. We all have individual genetic makeups, uh, you know, biological variances, including things like our brain composition, our emotional makeup that to some extent we don't have control over at least, you know, until we reach a certain age. And then by the time we reach that age, there may be a whole set of circumstances that impact then what we can do. I strongly believe that ultimately at some point or another, we are responsible for choices that we make, particularly once our brains are fully developed. Generally, I think that there may be some cases where people just don't have the brain capacity due to a whole host of physiological issues. But when how and where you are ready to make those is a different thing. One thing I admire about yeah. you, Oleg, is that you came to the discovery about the power of your story and your choice at a much earlier age than I did, mm -hmm. despite circumstances that were far more unusual. I was in my 30s before it occurred to me that I had a con you know, any power to control my own personal narrative. So I was a laggard compared to you. Now, there are <laughs> reasons for that. There are doggone good reasons. 
Um, and I think that those reasons were due to childhood circumstance. Um, and it was, uh, it was very, you know, it was very um, challenging to deal with them. I eventually came through and took control of my narrative and of my life and of my story. Um, and so I think at the end of the day, I was responsible for that and should receive the commendation that comes with that as well as, you know, definitely receive the benefits of that. But I wasn't ready at the same point in my life as you were. Hello, David Safir. It is so good to see you, by the way. I just had to interject that. He is a genius, one of my favorite people. Thank you so much for joining this broadcast. You know, you bring up a really good point, though, <clears throat> in regard to the narrative. So for me, I mean, it took many, many years before I was able to get to this particular point. But I've also realized something about the narrative, and that is, it, it's, I believe it's a never-ending story. You know, because as soon as I know something, and as soon as I've developed a certain level of comfort around a particular experience or a journey or whatever it may be, there's always going to be an additional layer within that and a layer beyond that. And I think considering the circumstances that we have been brought up in, both you and I, as well as many other people that choose to tune in and listen, the thing that fascinates me is is not necessarily seeing the other side, because I don't know what that other side is, but more so the journey that one goes on in looking at those circ circumstances and choosing, you know, is it a time for me to continue living out the same exact story, same exact events that I experienced? Or do I look at them as quote unquote testing ground or an opportunity to learn something? And I mean, even in your case, I'll share a story of mine. When I lived in the orphanage and I was required to kind of perform very similar military style ritual, you know, bed, bed had to be clean, but not clean, but it also had to be perfectly flattened out. Yes. There was no creases in, in, in the yes. sheets. Yes. You know, pillow had to be put up a particular way. Uh, mopping of the floors. I remember initially when I got in there, I thought I could, you know, cut corners and cheat the system a little bit. <laughs> and that is if I were to just kind of mop, I, I used to, um, I would get down on the ground and I would spread the uh, towel that I was using to mop the floors. And I would kind of just go like this, you know, to, to just <laughs> have the floor be wet. But here's the problem. Some of the caregivers in there, they would physically move the bed. And they would see the corners yes. full of dust and that didn't have any wet spots. So that's where I realized that, okay, I really can't cheat the system. Like I, I'm physically going to have to get under that bed and mop. But I will say that in having those experiences, however many years down the road, it has become my lifestyle now. Yeah. Everywhere I go, everywhere I live – the ability to stay clean, organized is at the core of who I am due to those experiences. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. a good portion of them did get ingrained. Yeah. You know, so I think there's a beauty. It's kind of like a double-edged sword when it comes to the childhood experiences. I think some of them I chose to take with me and, and look at those as learning opportunities or even skills to develop. And then others I chose to reframe completely. Yeah. And I think that understanding the difference between the two and, and separating the good from the bad, or at least what is optimal for you versus optimal for another human being is of extreme, extreme importance. Um, you know, my um, 
parents being adopted, mm-hmm. they had an, a, an interesting attitude about it. On the one hand, they were exquisite about um, making sure that I understood from a very young age that the adoption that occurred in my life of me was an act of love, both on the behalf of my biological parents and on the behalf of my of them, my adoptive parents. So on the one hand, I never felt a sense of emotional privation due to having been adopted. On the other hand, my parents did make it a point to let me know that I had been adopted by choice. Mm. Don't you forget that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't hold them in any ill will because of that, but it was an important part of how I grew up understanding what love was. And so the first long-term relationship I had um, ended not by my choice. Let's just put it that way. And because of that, I experienced it as a situation where the love that I had thought I was receiving unconditionally was actually another version of, I love you, but. Mm. And so I developed a very strong, hard reaction to that. I went through this period where I was like, well, maybe I'm just not lovable. Mm -hmm. Or, and I even had some physical reactions to it. Um, And then I eventually came to realize that, and due to the suffering that that caused me and the emotional distress and distraction, uh, I came to realize that I had to do something about this or everything else that I wanted for my life was just not going to materialize. And that is what led me at a certain age to begin to discover that I had power and control over my narrative. It was the elements that were, as you just mentioned, ingrained that were negative, that were trial runs for dysfunctional behavior Mm -hmm. as I grew up. But the dysfunctional behavior led to the unbelievably empowering understanding that I had the power, you know, that had the ability to change my narrative and my life going forward. And once that happened, the key my entire future mm-hmm. unlocked. Mm-hmm. And that's also the way by which I began to understand the truly unlimited nature of my future. So these things, again, have duality to them. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I just, I hate to hijack the conversation, but I have to say hello to Brian Bashand and to Eric Clark. It is so good to see both of you all. These are two wonderful people. What do you think about that choice aspect though? So I know that this portion, the one that you shared, it sounds like more kind of like a learning experience, right? An understanding that you always have a choice when it comes to whatever the circumstances, but is there another side to that? I mean, Yes, you're looking at it now from the lens of, okay, this is what my parents said, and this is how I'm choosing to interpret those things. But back in the day, how did you look at that when they emphasized that it was a choice that they made, like you were chosen? I interpreted it 
as an objective statement of fact that it was up to me to absorb. Mm. I tended to, as a child, absorb things through the lens that seemed to me to be the most comprehensive or the most reliable Mm -hmm. or that gave me some of the underlying frameworks for how I viewed the world, which was that of my parents. So gratitude for the fact that they chose to take me. Um, Also an understanding that, you know, I I had better stay in line because of the fact that I'd been chosen, you know, in certain Southern families, there was a phrase that you'd hear around the parents would say, and it's kind of awesome. It really is. My parents would say it as much as anyone else's. And this is not unique to them. I brought you in this world. I could take you out. Now they didn't literally bring me into the world, but they literally brought me into the existence of childhood that I had. And so, you know, they, they might not, they would say then knowing full well that I knew that they had not literally birthed me, but you know, Hey, (laughs) (laughs) the power to create your existence what has the power to create has a power to destroy and let me tell y'all that's a good phrase if you've got naughty children that well you know it's not a good phrase if i was gonna say jokingly it's a good phrase if you want to keep your kid in line because it gets their Mm -hmm. attention on the other hand it it doesn't it's it, it doesn't really keep them in line it may keep them in line temporarily but it also creates an understanding that love is highly conditional um, from a parent, which maybe a parent wants to communicate to their child. Certain parents might. I, I don't. I would not want to communicate that to my child, but mm-hmm. some might intentionally want to do that. But it also brings in an undercurrent of violence into the parent-child relationship, and then violence in childhood. Right, everyone knows has a profoundly corrosive and warping effect on that child, as well as pretty much everyone and everything that, that child comes into contact with. Mm-hmm. Oh, I couldn't imagine. And I think also just the level of trust that would get developed between the parent and the kid, you know, once you hear certain things. I know that during my childhood years, when I was surrounded by a couple of my friends whose parents chose a, the best way to put it, different parenting style compared to the one that I experienced, I was able to see however many years down the road, why, or or partially see the influence of the parents within some of my friends and some of the people that I would experience. But you, you do bring up a really good point. I think that element of fear also sets in, you know, whenever you're told that you can't do a certain thing or you can't speak a certain way after a while, that becomes the operating system that becomes the norm. Yeah. And then it goes as to what we're talking about earlier, which is the ability of someone to, understand that they have a choice over their own narrative. For instance, if the parent is very oppressive and sends a message to a child from a very early age, you don't have choice. You do what I tell you to do. Mm-hmm. Or if the parent doesn't say it that directly, but they say things like, I will give you love and approval and treats if you do what I want you to do or think the way I want you to think or express the emotions that you believe that I want you to express mm-hmm. and then punishes the child severely for having opinions or thoughts or behavior patterns that vary from what 
those parental expectations might be. Then the child could conceivably, depending on their makeup, grow up believing that they don't have the power to make their own choices, or they may not have learned how to make choices at all. And mm -hmm. so then by the time they're an adult, they're so, they're so terrified of making choices, or they simply making a choice just isn't something they can't even conceptualize. They don't even realize they're missing something because they've never even experienced what it's like to have it, however slightly. And mm -hmm. then all of those things ultimately will impact an, a, a person's ability to accept, let alone embrace, the power of making choice. Yeah. Joe Bogdan, a friend of ours, made a very interesting comment here. He said, instilling fear is the easy button and only yields temporary results. So that's very interesting. And I would actually love to hear his perspective when it comes to the military to begin with. <laughs> I mean, think about going into different words. This is, once again, a completely different topic from the childhood experiences <laughs> that we're talking about. But in a way, it relates, right? Going into different countries, different war zones, like how – I wouldn't even know how to like verbalize or conceptualize that, like instilling that type of fear. Well, and let's not be utterly U.S.-centric here too. Yeah. In many parts of the world, as we both know, children – have been and are drafted into military service. Yeah. In some, right, in some, you know, African civil wars, for instance, in recent memory, and this is by no means confined to Africa, so I don't want to just, you know, pick on one continent, mm -hmm. but, you know, there have been um, children that have been, you know, basically kidnapped at a young age by gangs and bred into committing slaughter. Um, one can argue that certain, like the Taliban also, uh, you know, had that element in it. And so then what does that mean if those children survive and grow up? Yeah. And that happens a lot more often. I mean, I was recently watching a TED Talk. This was a couple months ago where the person was describing, I think it was in Yemen. Like, I think that was the place he was talking about. But one of the things he was talking about was how growing up in a place like that and constantly seeing like drone strikes and all these other operations, you know, his only option was to live with fear. Every single day he woke up and he, he wasn't able to see the sky because of the clouds and just how, um, how dark it was outside. And he said, there was just a constant, constant state of mind. And that's a very, you know, it's a, it's a different experience without a doubt, than the one that you and I have experienced and I'm yeah. sure many other people. The, the thing that I got curious about when you were sharing um, this whole concept of looking at childhood and also the victim mindset, in your particular situation, do you ever catch yourself being a victim of your circumstances? It's funny. When I was in my early years of the practice of law, mm -hmm. there was a senior female attorney who loved to come up and slap my rear end, pinch my rear end. She'd tell me over and over how sexy she liked, you know, she thought my rear end was. She then would wink at me and say that's sexual harassment. And I sort of laughed it off, although it felt a little weird. I didn't, I will not say that I felt as though I was a victim. 
I, I really yeah. didn't. But I, I thought it was odd. I was also kind of complimented. But that's just me. I would not say that that's the way any other person should feel. In any event, I was telling some friends of mine at work about this, that this happened. And I said, um, yeah, you know, I was like, you know, she doesn't know me. I could be feeling like a victim. And then someone looked at me and they said, you a victim. <laughs> and the whole room sort of burst into laughter. And the reason why I say that, use that story, is because um, victim mentality can be something that we have even if we appear on the outside to be immune to it or to be exactly the opposite. I never thought of myself as a victim, which is why on some level, I believe those people reacted that way. Now, if I had said, for instance, I don't know if I'm going to get a promotion because I'm not reciprocating these advances this woman is making, then people might have felt very differently about it. But they could not conceive of me that way, I believe, in some part, because I couldn't conceive of myself that way. And as we've discussed, and as I've discussed in a number of other different forums before, in my earlier career, I had a very nihilistic, ruthless, hard-edged approach to life. <laughs> nothing was going to do, you know, nothing was, no one was ever going to do anything for me, so I'll just do it for myself. I viewed the universe as hostile and something to be beaten into submission by yours truly. Mm -hmm. Externally, that would not appear to be a victim mentality. It's the mentality of a conqueror, one might say. But it really was a victim mentality. Mm -hmm. Because I viewed myself as the victim of the universe's hostility. And therefore, I had to conquer it, my choice of a response was designed to do things. It was designed to do two things. One, give me a sense of power and control in the world, in a world and in a universe in which I felt I had none. But number two, to erase any external semblance of myself as a victim. And so I think that going back to your original question, mm -hmm. The events in my childhood, the hardships that I faced, did create a victim mentality. It's amazing because once life forced me to confront the limitations and the negative consequences of this very mercenary approach to my relationship with the world, and I began to understand that I had control over my story, including this story that the world and the universe were hostile, then I actually began to feel more comfortable showing the very weakness that I had worked very hard to uh, develop a facade to cover up. And yet, in exposing that weakness, develop strength mm -hmm. and became far less of a victim. Oleg, are there moments in time right now mm -hmm. when I feel like I'm a victim? Of course. Do I recognize them and work to change that narrative quickly? Yes, I do. I've learned and developed many years of practice around that. Am I perfect You know, with it every time? Of course not but I'm pretty damn good at it at this point. 
And so I do feel like, you know, the victim mentality can be pervasive. I suffered from it, but we may not understand or perceive the victim mentality in those around us because of the tools and techniques that they use to protect themselves from identifying as victims and to protect others from viewing them that way too. Mm -hmm. Do you think the victim mentality and victim mindset would even exist if it wasn't for the opinions from other people? Yes. I do think that the victim mentality, if one chooses to indulge in it, because there can, by the way, be power in really cultivating oneself as a victim. Mm-hmm. And in those circumstances, then uh, it, it's going to be much less of a big deal if there's no one around for you to build status based on your um, identity, externally facing identity as a victim. But still, one may, and I don't know exactly how this might evolve, but it's not impossible to imagine someone choosing to view themselves as a victim without really caring or being impacted by other how others view them. For instance, it may be easier to view yourself as a victim and acting purely in reaction um, to circumstances in your childhood that gave you, quote unquote, no, no choice about your behavior, mm-hmm. um, even if others aren't around or you don't care, right? Like you could be spilling coffee on your shirt every day and no one knows about it and no one cares, but you still feel like a victim. The world has given me a hand that makes me pour this and an addiction to coffee that I can't control and that makes me have this coffee and makes my hand always throw it on my shirt. Poor me. Mm-hmm. That's the best way I can answer. Joe made a really good point here. And I think it speaks directly to what you've described and that's choosing to lead by example. Um, and however, how long has it been? A year and a half that I've known you? Less it might be uh, probably a year. Yeah, closer to a year. I think yeah. one of the things I appreciate about you is that you do lead by example. Mm. You know, you set that standard, and but I think it comes from setting a standard for yourself. Yeah, you know, and setting a clear um, set of expectations and standards of what you want your life to be, even though you did have yeah. a difficult childhood. I had a yeah. difficult childhood. Many people, yeah. thousands, yeah. not millions of people. Yeah childhood but i think the the question that i get curious about is what's next and what do i choose to do with those experiences you know do i choose to lean into them and and learn from them and understand that okay the cards that i was dealt well those are the cards that i was dealt i didn't really have a choice but i think that goes back to the same exact point that you've made numerous times is that now you do have a choice right and you have a choice in, in how you look at those experiences what you do with it and I'll also say this, that like you and I choosing to create the space and share our own experiences, it's not as a way to diminish anyone else's trauma or circumstances because their circumstances are their circumstances. Well, and I have to say something about that, which is what I call the oppression Olympics on mm-hmm. a personal level, right? Like my childhood trauma was worse than yours, where mm-hmm. the sort of, right, whose childhood was most oppressive mm-hmm. ultimately is exactly 
a different version of the syndrome that we were talking about a second ago. It's victim mentality. Mm -hmm. It's in effect, in effect, what I um, was referencing in passing as I began my last set of comments, which is finding power in victimhood. But it's an illusory power mm -hmm. because any power, any social reinforcement mm -hmm. that you get from your status as a victim only exists so long as people actually feel sympathy for you. Yeah. And people's emotions, particularly directed at any individual, fluctuate quickly and dramatically. And two, are completely out of our control. Mm -hmm. That's why I choose not to play that. Well, it's part of why I choose not to play that game. The other is it's just not empowering. Yeah. I don't find it empowering to walk around, you know, with fake stigmata on my hands, acting like I am a martyr. Yeah. One last thing before we get into the different things that you do and ways that people can connect with you. Why do you think, or what do you think is the fascination in seeking that greater tragedy? You know, as you mentioned, because mm -hmm. I, I experienced the same exact thing. I know for me, oftentimes, whenever I start sharing my story about my childhood, I mean, you could hear the pin drop in the room. Mm -hmm. And that would go from, you know, 100 and whatever the decimals were, like extremely loud to no one speaking. And I've been curious about that. Like, why is it that the certain stories just capture the person's attention? Is it the ability to communicate the story or is it just something naturally instinct within some of us that we just get drawn to a quote unquote greater form of tragedy or what is perceived a greater form of tragedy? You and I someday should have a lengthy discussion Mm -hmm. about violence as an innate part of the human condition. Violence is how human beings evolved to be the dominant species on this planet. We did it by hunting down every other major organism in our ecological niche or that posed a threat to us as a, as a species. Mm -hmm. Many other potential competitors, we enslaved. Dogs, cats, yeah. other carnivorous animals. Almost and every in, animal out there. And in fact, right. And the most successful animals on this planet right now are things like insects or birds that are completely away from our ability to control or not in any, you know, related niche to us or are those that we have domesticated. Lions are barely hanging on. Mm -hmm. Sheet zoos are everywhere. What does that say? There are probably more horses in the world than there are gray wolves by many magnitudes. Yet horses are the prey. So the reason why I say all of that is because on one level or another, built into our species DNA is the attraction to understanding of and affinity with violence. Mm. 
It's how we rose to the top and it's how we stay there. I might add, Mm -hmm. we are the only species outside of maybe a few others who are capable of vengeance and can and will extract it on a species-wide level. Think about it. The coronavirus, Mm -hmm. whether or not it's an animal or not, viruses sort of hit that middle ground as to whether they're alive or not. But let's assume that that or some sort of other organism that was actually living were threatening our species. We are killing it. It will not live. Mm -hmm. We will not live in harmony with it if we have a choice. We will destroy it. So, thinking about the human experience and who we are with that lens in mind, is it any surprise that we are fascinated by and attracted to mm-hmm. huge stories of dramatic victimhood? Because victimhood is always about violence. It might be emotional violence. It might be physical violence. It might be individual violence. It might be social or society-wide violence. But when there's violence, we're paying attention because either we understand that it is a threat or because we understand what it is to engage in it. Wow. Well, that is definitely a topic for another conversation without a doubt. Probably a great topic for just a squirrel looking for a nut. Yeah. yeah. It really is. Because I, I didn't even think about it that way. But there's a lot of truth that you just brought up. Yeah. You know, violence is a part of many of us, if not all. I mean, the form of it varies, right? And how we choose to use it. But at the same exact time, everything that we spoke about today, even your choice of words, could be as a a form of violence. Yeah. As you know, for many years, I practiced jujitsu. Loved it. And no one ever that I've ever encountered has looked at me with horror when I've said that I was a martial artist. But that is simulated violence. Yeah. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I was respected because of that. Yeah. Wow. Scott, what is the best way that people can connect with you? I know that you have a podcast, which I will show here at the bottom. Purpose Highway. Yep. Purposehighway.com is where you find it. We are having powerful stories on that about folks, including you, Oleg, Mm -hmm. who are connecting with their higher purpose to build a better self and a better world. You can also reach me through my website, speakerscott.com and email me at scott at speakerscott.com. I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram, LinkedIn at smason1, Instagram at s.scott underscore mason. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. 
If you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content. Also, if you like what you heard, consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can hear these inspiring and courageous conversations. Once again, we thank you for listening and we'll look forward to having you next week.